philosophers, in the art of self-righteousness. The great philosophers of the art of self-righteousness, Cicero, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Thoreau, Thomas Paine, Martin Luther King, preachers, comedians, talk show hosts, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, Donald Trump, Seth Myers, Matt Reddy. I was born in Washington, D.C., raised in Bethesda, Maryland. I went to Parkwood Elementary School, later Kensington Parkwood Elementary School when we combined with Kensington Elementary. My best friend as a child was Vu Bui in Mark Wunderlich. Vu remained my one of my best friends all the way through high school. And after college we lost touch in most ways. Mark we stopped being serious friends after sixth grade. Although senior year of high school, we did have one final get together, him, me, and a friend, Andrew Rosacker. And Mark said he just wanted to get everyone back together one more time before going to college. I didn't know I was one of his everyone. We hadn't really been friends for years. Not that we were enemies, we just weren't really close. Mark was like my mentor growing up in elementary school. He's a legit genius. His parents were geniuses, scientists. Mark was way advanced in math and physics and self-righteousness and the art of making fun of people. I learned so much from him. We had a wonderful relationship. He, Mark is actually who taught me the birds and the bees. He had some books, some medical books that explained how sex works, and he took me through them. Uh, Mark Wunderlich, you taught me the birds and the bees of basically how procreation works. I mean, you didn't really teach me about 
flirting, although Mark did give me advice about flirting too. In, um, in fifth grade, I had an incredible crush on Kimmy Colella. And uh, she was kind of the new girl in school. And I had no idea how to connect with girls I had a crush on. So I was kind of staring at her in class once in a while. And it was funny. One day Mark, I told him about my crush. And he's like, try this. Stare at her. But when she looks at you, look away. And I was like, well, that's kind of what I'm already doing. But Mark thought it was a good idea, so I maybe I tried to make it more of a tactic. But I don't know if you know about this. But I've since discovered as an adult, or by this time, I'm now 46. So that was fifth grade. Sometime between fifth grade and being 46, I learned female humans don't always like being stared at from a distance by someone they don't know well. It took me many years to to realize it wasn't really a great get-to-know-you tactic to stare at someone until they look at you and then look away and then stare at them again and keep on doing that over and over again. Oh, man, I did that all the way through eighth grade. And it did not work for me. I couldn't, you know, surprise, surprise, surprise. Not to say I didn't have, like, a girlfriend or two, sort of. And by girlfriend, I mean a girl that said she was going with me and we were talking on the phone. That's what we called it, going with someone. We didn't say going out. It was the expression. It evolved in, like, fourth, fifth grade. Will you go with me? Will you go with me was the how you ask someone to go with you. And it meant you two were boyfriend, girlfriend. And... I guess I might have been the first one to have a girlfriend. I think her name was like Emily Nickerson. And that was like third grade, maybe second grade. I was way into girls way before other people. But, uh, yeah, Emily, and, and I think she kissed me on the cheek once. And I was like, whoa, that's something. And then I had some crushes after that, and it wasn't until Nikki Whitehurst, the saga of Nikki Whitehurst and David Whitney began in fourth, fifth grade, sixth grade, that uh, there was some drama. But still, I never really, I still hadn't really kissed a girl. I really was, I was into the relationships, but I didn't have any idea how to, how or why to even cross into the physical boundaries of physicality with a girl. I was just, or maybe I just basically was in no rush. I was like, just connecting with someone so that we're going with each other and talking on the phone. That was uh, plenty fascinating and intoxicating for me. And anything about physical contact just like scared me to death, really. Didn't know what I was afraid of. I just trusted my instincts. I was like, go with what you're enjoying and don't worry about what you're afraid of. I think I was lucky to have that fear at that age. Because physicality can be like a drug and be addictive. Another thing eventually I think I learned 
any case. Scholars of self-righteousness continues. Scholars and philosophers of self-righteousness, what are they good at? They are good at justifying themselves. They are good at arguing a position. And what a philosopher of self-righteousness can tell you, and why many people who have a hankering and knack for philosophy go into being a lawyer or a politician, is because you can argue almost anything. You really can find a way to argue almost any position. And so you can always claim the moral high ground. There's always a way. There's, there's, even if you are incredibly wrong, you can always claim the moral high ground. There is a method to it. You just have to change the beliefs, the, the facts of the moment. Basically, the basic one you have to change is that your interest is more important than the interest of the other. You can then, if you want to, you can claim that your interest is also the interest of the other. They just don't realize it. That you're claiming, we should call that a self-righteous attack, a way of... It's a possible way of brainwashing, allyship, gaslighting. Um, You're basically, you're trying to change the brain, or you're giving a pathway for the brain of the other person to join you. You're saying, you are wrong. I am actually trying to help you by, I am right. Just listen to me, and if you just go with me and believe me, then you are right too. And uh, so, yeah. But if what you are saying my interest is that you die and I take your stuff well you're you're basing that on a belief system that you are more important than them that your needs for stuff is more important than their life if that is logically true for you and the people that you are uh, doing things with then you will have no problem taking that life you can always find a way to believe you're being self-righteous What you can't always find a way to do is being truthful. So a philosopher of self-righteousness, a scholar of self-righteousness, they're not truth-tellers. They just know how to find moral high ground. A plausible moral high ground. They just need a plausible argument. I suppose that's what would distinguish a philosopher of self-righteousness. A true philosopher of self-righteousness is not just a magician or a cook trying to find some clever way to create a spell that makes it seem as if the position they are fighting for has the moral high ground. A true philosopher of self-righteousness would be looking for the truth. And I propose as... I consider myself a philosopher of self-righteousness, that we start with all people are equal, that all human lives are of equal value. All human lives are of equal value. Think about that. Think about what that would do if we suddenly started thinking that way. 
Instead of thinking all human lives in my country are of value, we start thinking all human lives on earth are of value. And since I assume they're all on earth, then they're all of value. But if there were people on earth and Mars and Europa and a space station and living on asteroids, then we would have a serious question. Are all human lives in the solar system of equal value to all human lives on earth? That's a big question. That's a very, that's a, that's a very different question. Because there's always the potential for interplanetary war or violence. Because people will start considering, because humans so far away from you, maybe it will be, you know, there is a, there's going to be a tension there between the pure humanist, who's like all human lives have value, and all human lives everywhere in the universe has value. And then it just becomes even more complex if we have other forms of conscious life, intelligent life, whether it's computer or alien or ghostly or anything. Holy, divine, godly. If there's any other type of life, is, it of, is all life of equal value? Or is their form of life more valuable than human life? These are questions that... I find rich. But for the sake of our purposes, we're all on Earth as far as I know, so I would say, can we all agree all human life on Earth is valuable? And ideally, we'd like to value and treat all human life on Earth equally. So if we were, say, starting over, like right now, to restructure society because maybe we noticed it was falling apart because it was held together with scotch tape and oppression and systematic uh, injustice and privilege and being exposed by a virus ravaging the earth um, if we just suppose we're considering the restructuring of society what if we started over with a new idea that one all people on earth are equal and valuable and all people on earth should have a vote at least they should all have a vote, at least in one um, form of human organizational structure. Doesn't have to be the only one. You can keep your churches, you can keep your clubs, your secret societies, keep your states, keep your nations, keep your sex, sex, like sex, S E C T S keep your identities but we have at least one where we consider all people equal everyone can vote we use a provably fair clear um, system for ensuring only one vote per human being use the cryptocurrency blockchains and other technology some form of ID and then we allow everyone on earth to talk to each other a little bit about how we want to structure society how we want to, what do we want to do about wealth what do we want to do about military power what do we want to do about nuclear weapons what do we want to do about climate change and just talk about this stuff even if we don't have any power in this new setup what if we could make recommendations showing a provable rock solid 100% accurate 
reflection of the will of people in every space on earth, anyone who desires to participate, any age, we can show their opinion on stuff. What do you think should be done about the coronavirus? When do you think it should be, society should be reopened? Which work is essential? How much should essential workers get paid? How much hazard pay should they be getting right now if they're risking their life? How much should healthcare workers get? Should healthcare workers be expected to go into patient rooms without adequate protective gear and risk their lives and the lives of their family? Or do they have the moral right to say no and step outside and say, thank you, I'll wait until I get protective gear before I go into there to treat that patient, just like a fireman might say, I'll wait until I have fireman equipment before I run into a burning building. Or a police officer in the United States might say, I will not fight crime unless you give me the tools, such as a gun. Or if you're in the UK, I will not fight crime unless you give me a billy club. Or if you're in Mexico, I will not be a police officer and confront criminals unless you give me massive machine guns on cheaps. It's different in different places. Everyone needs tools to do their jobs. Anyways, we could talk about this as a human race and use the blockchain to make it not just a crazy scattering of opinions floating around Twitter or Facebook and MySpace and Reddit and Dig and Yahoo message boards and news groups and bulletin board systems all over Earth. We make it, we put it in the blockchain so it's provable. It's 100% trustworthy and provable. Way more trustworthy than the polls, the constant polling data that we're fed in the United States where they ask 100, 300, or 1,000 people some question. We will create the ability to ask everyone on earth questions. And then all we need is facilitation. You just need facilitation in order to keep all these minds working together. And I've been thinking about this a long time and... I have my own method that I think can work for facilitating millions, billions of people simultaneously. Um, other people, I'm sh other facilitators out there, I'm sure have been thinking about this too, and you have your ideas. And uh, I propose that when we get all of humanity together on a platform and we start doing this, that we basically just give each facilitator that thinks they know how to facilitate all of Earth a chance to do it for, say, an hour at a time. And you just change facilitators. And we could do this using a clock, you know, I would volunteer to go first just to set things up. We started at noon one day and I'll facilitate for one hour and whoever gets in line next to facilitate at one o'clock, you're the next facilitator at two o'clock, the next facilitator and so on. And we keep doing this until time ends, which it will one day. But as long as there's humanity, then let's facilitate humanity and help all of humanity provably speak together, communicate, vote, discuss things. Let us publish whatever humanity comes up with through this 100% transparent, provably transparent process. And then let's just see what happens. Let's just see what happens. Let's just give humanity another voice. 
If anyone wants to help with this, feel free to do something, like communicate with me in some way. All right. Thank you for your time. Stay safe. Remember, truth is not always the most pleasant pathway, but truth always wins. So be a winner. Seek truth.